Good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would take your Bibles and turn it to that passage in Romans 8 as we continue on our series in Advent. Uh, Advent. How do I explain Advent? I think a good illustration comes from a friend of mine who was married in August of 2002. It's August of 2002, and um, as most people who are getting married, the events leading up to the, the wedding, there's, there's a lot going on, right? Some of you are in that place right now. And it can be stressful, but it's also very exciting. And with all the, um, with all the events, one of the things that they, you know, some of those events are a bit tedious, like uh, arguing and fighting with all the family over guest lists and seating arrangements and all that kind of thing. Uh, and some of those are, are exciting uh, and really fun, like um, my, favorite, my favorite time of engagement was the day, I like to call it going shooting. That's when I registered, because they give you a gun, and you go around, and you just get to like fire, and it feels like you're like on this you know, sweepstakes prize. You're like, choo, choo, choo. yes, I'll take that massive TV and that Xbox. Um, Pam and I went shooting separately, obviously. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that uh, my friend was most looking forward to was uh, he loves beauty, he loves creation, and he was looking forward to picking out flowers. So he's in a flower shop with his wife, or now wife, uh, looking to pick out flowers for their wedding, very excited. They get a call while they're in that flower shop from um, his fiance's parents or who are in another flower shop. The reason they were in another flower shop is because... Um, Tragically, her younger brother passed away uh, the month before their wedding. And so um, his, his soon-to-be in-laws were in a flower shop picking out flowers for a funeral, another flower shop, while he was in a flower shop picking out flowers for his wedding. And he calls it the world of two flower shops. And it's the world in which we live. A world in which there is incredible beauty and incredible brokenness. A world in which there is incredible pleasure and incredible pain. A world that is in deep tension. And I feel that tension as a pastor. Sometimes I make the same hospital visit and I go and I have the delight of visiting a newly born child. And then I walk across... Uh, to the other side of the hospital where someone has just received some tragic news. Same day. That's the world in which we live. That's what Advent is about. It's about a world that's in tension between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the world that Paul describes here in Romans chapter 8. He describes... On the one hand, one flower shop, if you will. He begins the chapter by saying in verse 1, There is now, now that Jesus has come, now that he has lived and died and risen again, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, he says that now that Jesus has risen and ascended on high, that the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You've been liberated from the law of sin and death because you have been transferred into a new world. You are no longer in the flesh, but you were in the spirit, verse 9. He will go on to say that because of what Jesus has done, verse 15, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, that you are sons. 
And that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are indeed now the children of God. It's a beautiful flower shop. And yet in the same chapter, he will go on in verse 18 to talk about suffering. The sufferings of the present time or more literally the now time. The time between the times. He will talk about groaning, verse 22. He will even describe Christians as being killed all day long and like sheep to be slaughtered, verse 36. And that's the other side of the flower shop. That's the other flower shop. These are the two worlds that exist simultaneously. And the question is, is what are we to do with this tension? How do we live in this tension? Because that's the tension in which we live. That's the tension that the church finds itself in. And that's the tension that Advent reminds us that we live in all the time. How do we do it? Well, I think these verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, give us a very good answer to that question. Let me pray for us as we consider it. And Lord, as we are here in the now time, we ask that you would reveal yourself. That you would reveal yourself in all your power as the God who saves. Who kills and brings to life. Who wounds but also heals. Who knows the end from the beginning. And the one who is without comparison. Do this we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it was 7 a.m. on September 8th when uh, Kit Bailey first received the call that a fire not too far on the ridge in the Sierra foothills had just gone off. He had worked in law enforcement, or in fire, uh, sorry, in in fire his whole life. He was a hot shot. He uh, worked with the fire department, and as this was being described to him, he knew that it was ominous. He got in his car and started driving as fast as he could. The fire first hit Concow, a tiny little uh, town. The first started, the first house, about four miles from where the fire started, uh, the houses started burning there at 7.35 a.m. People ran out their houses and they jumped into the lake as the campfire approached. And they swam to an island. There, they experienced hypothermia as they watched their houses being burned down in this little island as they were shivering in the cold. The campfire next hit Paradise around 8 a.m. Paradise has... 27,000 people that live in it, mainly families and retirees. It's composed of uh, 20 mobile home parks, 
one of those mobile home parks is what was caught ablaze the first. A spark or a flame jumped into the camp. It hit a bunch of um, a pile of pine needles, and then the place just erupted. It also has is home to just as many churches, 20 churches, including one in our own denomination. As you read the reports of what happened there, it was just a nightmare. And people were trying to get out of town, and there were only three roads to evacuate on, and there were traffic jams, and they were stuck, and their cars were running out of gas as fires are just rushing towards them. Some died in the flames, having never left their home. Others in the streets from inhaling smoke and poisonous gases. Others when their cars caught fire. And you hear that and you think, why? Why such a devastating, horrible Natural disaster and destruction, why? But of course, that pales in comparison to what the people of Indonesia faced this year. In late July, they were hit with a 6.4 magnitude earthquake. Another earthquake hit on August 5th. It was 6.9, and that brought 468 deaths. And that was nothing in comparison to what would hit in late September when another 7.5 magnitude earthquake caused a tsunami that was 20 feet that leveled entire cities, killed over uh, 2,800 people, and left 330,000 people homeless. To a people who already were hurting enough, already didn't have much subsidy. Why? And these events are, those are just two off the list of this year. That's not to mention Port-au-Prince and what happened in Haiti in 2010, just when I moved here. It's not to mention Katrina or Harvey, and we think, why? Why this devastation? Why, why does the earth disrupt like this, disrupt our lives? Why? In verse 20, Paul says that creation is subjected to futility. Verse 21, he says that it's in bondage to corruption. In verse 22, he says that the creation groans together in pains of childbirth until now. That creation suffers, that it groans, that it's in pain, and that it's subject to futility. And we ask, why? There are lots of popular answers. I mean, anytime things like this happen, you usually will get someone who will, usually a preacher that will come on TV, national TV, or write an op-ed and say, well, the reason is, is because of sin, right? I mean, you've been to the French Quarter, you know how it is. That's why Katrina happened. Or they say, you know, well, we know the people in Indonesia aren't really God-fearing, so that's why it happened. But 
you know, Paradise had 20 churches for 27,000 people. And I'm not sure that Katrina, like New Orleans or the people in Indonesia are any more sinful than anywhere else. Well, others say it's not because of sin, it's actually because of stupidity. We were coming back from our honeymoon, and as we were coming back, Katrina had just happened, and everyone was talking about it. And I was sitting there on a boat, and I overheard these two people as we were coming back from Martha's Vineyard on our honeymoon. I overheard these two people, and they said, well, I mean, you know, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but you really shouldn't be building a civilization below sea level. I mean, it kind of serves them right. And what were they thinking? And it's not just those two people on a boat. I mean, when we were looking to move over here, I had my friends in England who were British said, uh, as, as Santa Barbara was on fire at that time, they said, why would you move to a place with fires and earthquakes and predatory animals? <laughs> Did you know that in England they have no predatory animals? It's amazing, except for the people. But <laughs> I, why would you move somewhere like that? Uh, of course, then the next uh, two weeks later, there were massive floods all across England. It, it's like maybe, maybe if we could just move somewhere, though, if we could find some place that was free of natural disasters, that we could be immune from this kind of thing, maybe that is the answer. Maybe that's what we need to do. Did you know that Yellowstone is a supervolcano? And that if it were to erupt, ash would cover the whole country? And that it would actually send the world into another ice age? It's, it's almost like there's nowhere in the world that we can go to be safe from natural disasters. It's almost like there's no safe place to live. It's almost like there's no place that can be peaceful and home where the creation doesn't groan and it isn't subject to futility. Why? Well, verse 20, Paul says that creation was subject to futility, not willingly. It did not subject itself, but because of him who subjected it. Uh, Paul says that someone subjected creation to Futility. Someone put creation in this bind. Who? Why? Well, Paul's actually reflecting on another passage in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. And we know that because he uses words like subjection and childbirth and pains and groans. These words actually come from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve are in paradise. They are in the garden of paradise. And as they are in paradise, they have everything they could ever want. Yet the one thing that they do in the midst of paradise is that they reject God and a relationship with him. And in their rebellion, they eat the fruit of the tree. They ate the mango, not an apple. They ate the mango. After they eat the mango, what happens? God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did. They died. And yet, they were alive. They were spiritually dead, and yet they were alive. And they were dead in the midst of paradise. 
still in the midst of paradise, and yet dead. And it's in that state when they are dead, surrounded by paradise, that God comes and says these words. To Eve, he says in Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, what God says is, in these very places, Eve, where you're supposed to find fulfillment and flourishing and satisfaction in your relationships, in your family, in childbearing, in being an image bearer of me and being a creator, a co-creator with me, in those places, you are going to experience pain and brokenness, broken relationships, broken relationships with your husband, broken relationships with your children, broken relationships in childbearing. You are going to experience pain. And to Adam, he says something similar. Verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and not eaten of the tree which I have commanded, and eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, uh, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles I shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, Adam, in this place where you're supposed to find fulfillment and flourishing and being an image bearer like me and you're working and cultivating the ground, what you're going to experience is suffering and pain and heartache and futility and the ground is going to bite back until you return to it. It's like God made the world so that it would not work for Adam and Eve. It's like God broke the world so that the world would not do for Adam and Eve what it was supposed to do. He subjected it to futility. That is, he subjected it to a place where it would not fulfill its purpose. And we live in that world. I mean, do you not know the pain of broken relationships? Especially in your family? Do you not know the pain of a broken body? Do you not know the pain of brokenness in your work life? In your vocation? And aren't these the places where we feel the stress the most? Aren't these the places where we suffer the most? In our bodies? in our vocations, in our relationships. I mean, we know this world. As the man in black said to Princess Buttercup in that great theological film, The Princess Bride, life is pain, Highness. And anyone who says differently is selling something. Or a little more poetic, W.B. Yeats in his poem, The Second Coming, said things fall apart and the center cannot hold. Things fall apart and the center cannot hold and we say, why? Why did God put us in a broken world? Why did God break the world? And one answer is 
yeah, I guess you could say because of sin. I mean, he did say because you, you ate of the fruit of the tree, you did not listen to me. So in one sense, it is a result of sin, but, but there's more here. Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That is because God subjected it. And then he says, in hope. In hope. What does that mean that it's subjected in hope? That is that God subjected this world, God broke the world, that we might hope for something. Things fall apart. Yeats said, surely the center cannot hold. And then later on he said, surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. God broke the world that we might hope. And what is hope? Verse 19, I think we have an explanation of, of what hope is. He says that the creation waits with eager longing. Verse 23, it says that we wait with eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is hope? Biblical hope is an eager waiting, an expectant waiting for, for something to happen. And it's not like wishful thinking. It's, it's, an, it's an anticipation that God is going to bring about something which only God can bring about and we cannot bring it about. And we wait for it. We wait for it and we wait for it expectantly knowing that it will happen because God has promised it. Do you hope? Because verse 24 says that it's in this hope that we are saved. And so if you don't hope, you aren't saved. The disposition of those who are saved is in hope. And you know what kills hope? Cynicism. Cynicism kills hope. Cynicism is the attitude that, that things are wrong and they're always going to be that way. Cynicism expects the worst. Cynicism does not eagerly expect and wait for God to do something to bring salvation. Cynicism waits for the other shoe to drop. Cynicism kills hope. You know what else kills hope, though? Complacency. Complacency kills hope. And complacency says, this is how things are, and I'm fine with it. The only time I'd ever heard of this area of the country before I moved here was when my friends, uh, my best friend in the world, he came and honeymooned here. Uh, he actually honeymooned in the San Ysidro Ranch. Right? And his, his uncle uh, very kindly paid for his honeymoon. And he went there. And I asked him, how was Santa Barbara? How was Montecito? What was it like? And he says, I have no idea. I said, what do you mean you have no idea? He goes, we never left our hotel room. Said, what do you mean you never left your hotel room? He goes, well... The hotel room was so nice, and everything was so expensive that we just stayed there at the hotel the whole time. And I asked him, I'm like, well, did you see the beach? He's like, no. What do you mean you didn't see the beach? Did you, how was the downtown? Did you see the downtown? No. Like, literally, he did not leave his hotel room 
because he was just content there. I mean, he's like, my uncle was paying for it. He paid for the food. They brought us room service. We just sat in the hotel room. Now, I am sure I've never been, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. I am sure that the San Ysidro Ranch is really, really nice. I'm sure it is. I am also sure that Santa Barbara has a lot more to offer than his hotel room did. You know what would have been the best thing for him? Is if, is if the lights broke and the electricity broke for a day. Is if the air conditioning stopped working and he had to get out of the hotel room and he was forced to go explore something different, something better. You know, tsunamis are horrible. Do you know what's worse than a tsunami? Earthquakes are devastating. Do you know what's worse than an earthquake? Fires are tragic and gut-wrenching. But you know what's worse than a wildfire? Being dead, but surrounded by paradise. And being happy with that. And not knowing that you were made for something different. For something more. For something better. Why did God break the world? So that we might hope for another world. Why did God break the world so that you might know that there is no place in this world that you can call home as it is? God broke the world that you might hope for another world because in his wrath he remembered mercy. Because this is the God who kills and makes alive. Because this is the God who hands all over to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And he broke the world so that we could feel in this world that we are not at the end. And that he wants more for us. And so, and so we hope. We hope knowing that what we see now and everything we see now is not all we were made for. Because here's the thing. If you have everything you ever wanted right now, and if you're content, and if you're fine just where you are, and if life is grand, and you say, oh, what a wonderful life, then what good is hope? In other words, as Paul puts it, verse 24, now hope that is seen is not hope. See, if you see everything that you, everything that you need, and everything that you want, and all your desires being met, then, then that's not hope. But it's in hope that we are saved. And what are we hoping for? What are we expectantly waiting for? We wait expectantly for a world that is free from futility. Verse 20 says the creation was subject to futility and the creation waits to be liberated from this state. Uh, do you know what futility's like? I, um, I can tell uh, illustrations about my students because they're gone. So I had this one student this past semester. Um, she was 
she was a lot of fun. Uh, she did these little cartoons in my class about every, every kind of like lecture, she would come up with a funny cartoon. But um, she also decided, hey, I'm in Santa Barbara, I'm going to take up surfing. So she takes her money that she's, she's gotten, she gets a surfboard. Uh, she's going to the surf shop with her friend. They strap the boards on the top. They go to the surf shop because the, her friend needs some wax. They go and get the wax, and then uh, they get back in the car, and they drive to Mondo's. They go to Mondo's Beach, and she gets out, and she looks on top of her car, and her surfboard is gone. <laughs> and she looks at her friend, and she goes, did you not strap the, your board back on top? She goes, no, I just threw it in the back. So she somewhere lost her surfboard that she had paid all this money for and gone and bought like on the way to the beach. So before she even got to use it, it was gone. So she's like, well, I'm all in. So I'm going to do this. So she goes online. She looks on Craigslist. She finds another surfboard. She goes and picks it up. She straps it on. She gets on the 101. As she's going to the beach to go surfing, she looks out of her rearview mirror and she sees a surfboard flipping and flopping and then just shatters in a million pieces on the 101. And then she just keeps driving with like tears in her eyes, right? That's futility. <laughs> that is what futility is. That is the definition of futility. Like, I'm going to become a surfer. I'm going to go surf. I'm gonna, I'm, she drained her bank account. It was gone at that point. Like, she completely drained it. She's like, I got no more money to spend on you surfboards. She, you know, I'm going to go surf. I'm going to spend my money. She doesn't even make it to the beach. We all have those moments in life. We have those moments every week. Maybe not as... Devastating, maybe not as, uh, as severe, but we all have those moments. And what is being promised is a world that is free from futility, where everything is effective and efficient and works as it should. I mean, could you imagine a world like that? Where every call you make goes through. Where every conversation you have, the other person understands and the communication is crystal clear. Where you never have to go back to explain anything. Where every time you put something together, it works the first time. Uh, you know, when you call up a repairman, it, the schedule works, he comes out, he fixes, it's done. What world is that? I don't know that world. But that's the world I hope for. That's the world that's coming. When everything that we do, we will flourish in. That's what we hope for. We wait expectantly for a world that's free from futility. We wait expectantly for a world that's free from death and decay. Verse 21 says that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. That this creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You see... Things do fall apart, and the second law of thermodynamics are at work, but one day, someday, this world will be transfixed. And by the way, it is this world, because liberation is not annihilation. If it's this world that's set free, you don't set free something by destroying it. So I believe absolutely that the world in which we live and move and have our being, the world which we are walking on now, is a world that will be there, but it will be perfected. And it will be glorious. 
And do you know what that means? It means that the best experiences that you have in this life, it means that the wedding flower shop experiences will go on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever. Only better. It means that the best meals that you have now, you will experience. It means that the, the best relationships that you have now, it means that the most beautiful sunsets, it means that the things that take your breath away now in this creation and in culture, that they will be there. Because they will be perfected and brought in to the new world that is free from death and free from decay. I mean, there are so many amazing artists out there whose works have been lost to time. I mean, could you imagine a world in which those are never lost? Where we have all of, I mean, all of us will own a Picasso. That will be enough. This is the world which we expect and hope for. And it's not just creation around us that's going to be free from death and decay. It's also the creation that is a part of us our bodies. See, we wait expectantly for a body that is free from death and decay. You know, some of you experience headaches, debilitating headaches. Some of you, it's joint pains. Other of you, it's severe allergies that actually make social interactions very difficult. For others of you, it's stomach problems. For some, it's chemical imbalances. Cause anxiety and depression. I mean, the ways in which our bodies don't work in the now time. We long for a time when this will be changed. Luke verse 23 says that not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? For the adoption as sons, which is what? The redemption of our bodies. And why? Why is the body so important? Because in Paul's world, the body is how we communicate with God and with the world. It's how you hear. It's how you see. It's how you relate to one another. You can't, you don't have no relationships outside of a body. The body is actually how you communicate and receive communication from the world around you. And the body is so significant that Jesus Christ took on a body, he was raised bodily, and we will be raised bodily too so that we can communicate with one another and with God forever and ever and ever and worship him with our bodies and enjoy the stuff of the earth that is transfigured and transfixed. And this these bodies will be liberated from death and destruction and decay and no more pain and no more waking up with aches and no more, no more, I mean, I know, that I was sick this week. I mean, the, the time that I lost killed me, futility and the pain. And that was just like a, a cold, but also like my relationships suffer because of it. Because I'm not able to interact the same way. Now that's a very, very small, very, very small example. 
and you all know the bigger ones, but if even that is going to be taken care of, then how much more? How much more the dehabilitating bodily groans that we feel. We wait expectantly for a body that is free from death and decay. We also wait expectantly for our sonship to be fully realized. Look, verse 19 says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God. There is going to be a revelation of the sons of God. And a revelation in the Bible is something that has always been true or is true, but is unseen and will be fully made true or fully revealed by God. Here's what Paul is talking about, I think. He is saying that right now we have the first fruits of the Spirit and therefore experience an adoption. And we are God's sons. But guess what? Our sonship, it doesn't always come across visibly. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I don't act always like a son. I don't always look like a son. I don't always rule and righteously reign like a son. And that's what a son of God is to do. I don't always love others like a son. And so in the now time, it's actually becomes, there are parts of my life that make it really unclear whether or not I'm a son of God. It's called sin. And it happens for all of us. But if the revealing, the revelation of the sons of God, the reason why we will be revealed is because what is true of us in union with Christ invisibly will be manifest externally in every aspect of our life. And the way we speak, and the way we interact, and the way we fulfill our vocations, every aspect of our life will, will shout the evidence that we are children of God. And there will be no more doubting by us or by others. This is what we are waiting for. For our adoption to be fully realized. And we also wait expectantly. In other words, what all this points to is that what we wait expectantly for is glory. Paul says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is what glory is. Glory is the world fully alive, fulfilling its purpose fully in every aspect. Glory is the world operating 110% And glory is what we are waiting for, expectantly waiting for, because God will bring it about. And Paul says that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And do you know what that means? It means it's not worth comparing. So we don't need to compare. We just need to reflect and focus and set our eyes on the glory that's to come and say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.